You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. We pray, God, we would remember that well today. We would respond well in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is so good to see you. You're not happy to see me, but that's okay. All right, we're going to get there. Um, if you have a Bible, you turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to continue our series this morning through this little letter that we're calling That You May Know. Um, I've mentioned before that my wife and I have three children, right, three small children. Our oldest two are boys, and we have an eight-month-old daughter. And so um, our oldest two, by God's grace, um, they genuinely enjoy one another, okay? So they don't just tolerate each other. They're actually friends, which is awesome to see. Um, But here's the thing. Even friends have their moments, don't they? And you know what I'm talking about, right? It don't matter... It doesn't matter who they are, how much you love them. If you spend all your time with someone, they're gonna do something to get on your nerves, right? And you're gonna respond, especially when you don't have a filter, right? You're just gonna do it because you're four. Um, so that's kind of what happens. So by the time that I get home from work in the afternoons, it's what we call outside time, all right? Mama needs a break from playing referee. So by the time I get home, it's like we gotta get these boys out of the house. That is my job, my job, my role as a faithful husband and father is to remove them from her, okay? And so I get them outside, um, and a lot of times we play in the front yard or we'll go on a walk, you know, get on the playground, whatever. So this last week, we were on our way back from the playground, and actually Mary Elizabeth went with us, and it was great, you know, beautiful evening. We're just walking along, the two youngest from the stroller, and Zeke's riding his bike, and then Brooks, our two-year-old, he's in the stroller. He decides he doesn't want to ride in the stroller anymore. He wants me to carry him, Okay? Um, but I don't want to carry him, and I don't, because I don't know if you've seen this kid recently, but he is not your typical two-year-old, okay? So go figure, right? Um, but anyways, um, he starts melting down, and he's asking me to hold him. And I know you're judging me right now. You're like, just, just pick your kid up, okay? Just pick him up. But again, this is not 15 to 20 pounds we're talking about here. This is north of 30. We're a half mile from home. It's not happening, right? I, got, I know, surprise, surprise, I can't do it. You know what I mean? Um, Anyways, um, he's crying for me to carry him, but I don't want to. And so I do what any parent would do in that moment. I start trying to negotiate, all right? We gotta figure a deal out here. So I say, hey buddy, here's what we can do. You can either ride in your stroller, where you are, or you can ride on daddy's shoulders, okay? Because I'm not gonna hold him, but you can sit up there. So he decides he wants to sit on my shoulders, problem solved, right? Well, not exactly, because as soon as he gets up there, he gets scared and he starts freaking out, all right? Up on my shoulders, he's freaking out. And to, to his credit, that's like nine feet in the air, okay? <laughs> he's small, so that would be like you and me sitting on top of a telephone pole. It, it can be kind of scary, right? The wind blows wrong, you never know, okay? So he's up there, and he starts melting down, and he bursts into tears, right, because he's freaking out. And so with one hand, he like is grabbing, trying to gouge out my left eye. His right hand's grabbing a handful of the hair that I have left on top of my head. It just, it was going south quickly, okay? So I try to get him down, start calming him down. And I say to him, I say, hey, buddy, don't you know Um, that daddy's not gonna let you fall. And he says, I know. I say, buddy, don't you know daddy is not gonna let anything happen to you? He says, I know. I say, buddy, don't you know daddy is not, or daddy loves you? He says, I know. I know you love me. And here's the thing, my son knows that I love him and he even said this, but when he was up on my shoulders, he was so gripped by his fear that he couldn't trust what he said he knew. In that moment, he couldn't trust what he confessed and said, that he, what was true. And so the difference in that moment was he knew it, he knew that I loved him, but he didn't believe it. He didn't believe it in that moment. And I mentioned this to you this morning because I think we do the same thing in our lives all the time. We say that we know that God loves us, but the way that we live our lives says something different altogether. 
We say we know that the Father loves us, but our actions prove that we don't believe it. Because oftentimes, if we're honest, the way we live our lives is we're, we desperately look for something to grab onto so we don't fall. And we're motivated by our fear rather than by his love for us. But 1 John 4, verse 16, which we'll read today, this will be on the screen, says this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. And so we're in a section of this letter where John is starting to repeat a lot of what he said, okay? So he, what he's doing here is, instead of introducing to us a new theological truth, he's trying to move us past introduction of it, move us past the knowing, and get us to the believing. And the word know here, it means to learn or to understand, but the word believe in verse 16 here, it means to trust or to commit yourself to. It means that you will put your confidence in it. It's like if you've ever been rock climbing or more specifically rappelling. And you, if you've ever done that before, you know there's this guy um, and he's you know, decked out, definitely been to REI recently, you know, and he's there and he's trying to walk through the process for you and he's explaining the equipment. So the carabiners and the harness and the ropes, he's telling you, the ropes that we're gonna use, he probably shows you a video, it could hold up an SUV, right? It's rated at 5,000 pounds. And what's he doing there? He wants you to know the rope's not gonna break. He's trying to convince you and show you, hey, this rope is not gonna break, and you know that. But what happens, even though you know that, when you start to back yourself over the ledge, that's when your confidence in the rope is actually put to the test. That's when you find out if you believe in the rope or not. And what John is trying to do here in chapter four is he's trying to get you and me to lean back into the love of God, to actually trust it and, and believe that it counts for us. And so we've talked a ton about love in this series, and the reason why is because John uses the word love more than any New Testament author, right? 46 times in this letter he uses the word love, and 28 of them are in our section today. 15 verses today, we got 28 times John uses the word love. And I'm a pastor, not good at math, um, but I think I can do that, right? That's almost two times a verse John uses this word love. And again, he's not introducing anything new to his audience and he's not introducing anything new to us. We know that God loves us, don't we? If you're here this morning, you, you know that. And I don't mean like you believe it, I mean you know it. You, you've learned it before, you've heard it before. My four-year-old son, he comes home from preschool singing it. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's not just a children's song, by the way. Praise God for that truth. That we know that the creator God of the universe loves us, that the, we have the scriptures to teach us that. Again, not just a children's song. So you know it, but do you believe it? Do you trust that the love of God actually counts for you? And again, I think we would get this question right on a quiz. True or false? Jesus loves you. True. But what do the actions of your life say? Are you willing to lean back against the rope? Or are you like my son up on my shoulders, gripped by your fears, desperately looking for something to grab onto because you feel like you're about to fall? Um, if you've been here with us for this series, you know that we've been calling it that you may know, and each week we've been pulling one thing out of the text to highlight, one thing out of the text to say, this is what John wants us to know, that you may know blank. And so you would think 28 times in 15 verses, this one would be that you may know love, but two weeks ago, Bill already used that one, all right? So we gotta get creative here. Um, and, and clearly, if you read through this, John wants us to know that God loves us, but after you spend some time in the passage, I think what begins to pop out is 
He doesn't just want us to know it and to believe it. He wants us to see what happens in our lives if we do. What happens in your life if you believe that God loves you? And I think what John wants us to see is that we would know freedom. That we would know that God's love is the pathway for us to freedom. And so I have two main points in this sermon. Firstly, it's what have we been set free from? And then secondly, it's what we've been set free to. But again, it's God's love that sets us free. God's love is the pathway to freedom. And so we need to make sure that we're on the same page when we talk about love and make sure we know what it means. Because if God loves us, we need to know how he loves us in order for us to be set free from in two things. Um, because we use the word love for a lot of things, right? I love my wife and children. I love the Georgia Bulldogs, too soon, I know, it stings, okay? I love tacos, love Taco Tuesday. We use that word love for a lot of things, right? So which is it? Does, does God love us the way I love my wife or does he love us the way I love tacos? Well, John is gonna tell us in this passage He's actually gonna give us three things that define for us biblical love. Three things in this passage that God defines for us the way that he loves us, and again, the way that we should love. And I want us to see this before we start to talk about how it sets us free. So look at verse nine. We're actually gonna come back to seven and eight toward the end. Look at verse nine with me. Uh, John says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And so this word manifest here, it means to be clearly seen or it means to appear, right? So John's point is this, if you wanna know God, if you wanna know how he loves you, then you look at this thing. This is how God loves you. He sent his son into the world. And so the first thing that we see about biblical love is that it sins, not sins, S-I-N-S, okay? But love sins with a D. I got an accent, so it's hard there. I'll have to spell it for you. Um, but God the Father sent his only son into the world. That's how we know that God loves us. This is what John says. The father sent his son into the world and he did not go begrudgingly. It's not like when I send one of my boys, hey, go to your room and they just stomp off, you know, they're all mad and fine, I'll do it, right? No, Jesus willingly left his place. What we talked about this morning and we read in Revelation 4, the place where heavenly creatures, he sat at the right hand of God the father. Heavenly creatures and beings ascribed worth and glory and beauty to him. They said, holy, holy, holy are you, worthy are you, the lamb who was slain, right? They're ascribing this glory to him. He willingly left that place. Jesus, the Lord most high, willingly made himself low for you. That's how you know that God loves you. John is saying, this is how we know that God loves us. He sent his son. And if we wanna know how it is that God loves us, we need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is a staggering truth because the Bible just said that in love, God gave his best to you before you did even anything to earn even a fraction of it. God gives his best to you. John says there's something you need to know about love. Love sins, meaning it initiates, meaning it starts with God. He is the one who does it. It starts with him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And this is so hard to wrap our minds around because nothing in our world works this way. If we love something or we love someone, it's because there's something about them that we're drawn to. So if you say, man, I love that guy, it's because he's funny or he did something athletic or because he did it kind or I love that girl, it's because she's whatever. There's something about them that we're drawn to. That's why we love people, we like them. But what the Bible is saying is that God loves us despite the fact that we are unlovely. Despite the fact that we are completely unlikable. Romans five says it this way, I want you to see this. Starting in verse six, Romans five on the screen. For while we were still 
weak. That word weak translated is not helpful. The word is helpless. Weak kind of constitutes, well, you could pull yourself up. No, while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, verse eight, but God shows his love for us. It manifested in this way that while we were sinners, helpless, broken, dead, Christ died for us. Love sins. God makes the first move towards us. And again, this is so hard to wrap our minds around because you think to yourself right now, there is no way that counts for me. Look at all that I've done. Maybe even last night for you. Maybe it was hard for you. I wanna go to church, but I don't know if I can because of blank. I want this to be true, but, but there's no way this counts for me. Look at all I've done. There is a way. It's because his love doesn't start with you. It starts with him. He is the one who sins. This means there is no sin in you greater than God's love for you. Even that thing that you did 20 years ago or that you did two nights ago, the thing that heaps shame on you, that makes you feel guilty, the thing that makes you feel like a disappointment to yourself and to God and to the people around you, even that thing, there is no sin in you that is greater than God's love for you. And since that is true, God's love for you is not dependent on you in any way. Look at verse 10 again. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Love sins, but it also sacrifices. And you're like, well, where do you get that? Well, this word propitiation is a word that means a payment that satisfies. So God sent his only son into the world, but he didn't send him to help us out here and there. He sent him to be the savior of the world, to rescue us from sin and death. He sent him to be a sacrifice for us. There's a, a pastor down in Florida who I listen to from time to time. He says it like this. We aren't mistakers in need of a life coach. We are sinners in need of a savior. Which means we don't need some tips and some tricks to kind of help us do better and try harder, right? We need to be brought from death to life and that's what Jesus did. John says, this is why the father sent the son to be our propitiation, to satisfy us the payment for our sin, the debt that we owed because of our rebellion against God. Colossians 2 says it this way, that Jesus cancels the record of debt that stood against us. He cancels the record of debt that stands against us. And this he set aside, the Bible says, how? By nailing it to the cross. Jesus removes us out from underneath the crushing weight of our sin and shame where we had no way to climb out of it on our own and no way to pay back the debt we owe. God the Father sends the Son to be our propitiation. He sends him to be a sacrifice to satisfy the debt we owe. And then John says, love sins, love sacrifices. And then here's the third one. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit and we have seen and we testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God and so we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And so what happens here, and you probably picked up on it, that's why I read a big chunk, is that John shifts his language. He shifts away from love, 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 love to abide, 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 abide. And five times in these three verses, John uses this word abide, which means to remain or to dwell. And what John is doing here is he starts using relational language. And he says that we abide in him and that God abides in us. And his point is that we've been invited into an ongoing relationship with God that God isn't just some benevolent deity 
some benefactor who came along one time and did something nice for us and we're never gonna see him again. He says we abide, that we're connected to him, he says, by the power of the spirit. And so Jesus, or John says that love sins and love sacrifices and then he talks about abide and his point here is that love stays. Love stays. So the father sends the son to rescue us from sin and death, but he doesn't just pick us up out of the ditch and then clean us up and then send us on our way with a, hey, don't let it happen again. He says, I'm with you. I'm gonna stay. I'm always gonna be here again. This is a staggering truth for the believer and follower of Jesus that God is with us and he will stay with us. He's invited us to belong, to abide, to remain in relationship with him as sons and daughters. He's given us his son and he's given us his spirit to stay with us. This is the love that God has for us. Ascending love, a sacrificial love, and a staying love. This is what Deuteronomy 31 says, when, or what it means when, God, uh, when the Bible says, God will never leave you or forsake you. That's what Jesus means at the end of the Great Commission when he says, and behold, I'm gonna be with you always even to the end of the age. And these words in the original language, I'll never leave you and forsake you, I'm gonna be with you always, never and always, they actually mean never and always. God says he'll never leave you or forsake you. Let that rest on you this morning. I'll never leave you, no matter what you do. Jesus says, I will be with you always. And I think it's easy right now to go, I know that, I know it but do you believe it? Do you believe it? Because the reality is if we did, if we didn't just know that God loved us that way, if we actually believed it, I think our lives would look different. I know mine would. I think we would be free. And believing God's love is for us the pathway into freedom. Maybe you're like me right now, you want it to be true. I want, I want to believe it. But, right, but it seems too good to be true, right? How could this possibly be? It's like you see an ad and you go, man, that sounds great. But then something doesn't seem right about it. And you go look at the fine print and you go, oh, I get it. That's why that could be so cheap or whatever. This is what this feels like. With most fine print, the deal does get worse, but with God, it gets better. Look at verse 17. He says, by this is love perfected or made complete in us. And that's not us being perfectly loving. That's we fully believe God's love. It becomes complete in us this way so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment. He says this, because as he is, so also are we in this world. And so if you write or underline your Bibles, put a big circle around the end of verse 17. As he is, so also are we in this world. If you memorize scripture, you hide that in your heart. And you go, well, I can't memorize scripture. I have a terrible memory. Well, somehow you remember sports statistics from 10 years ago. You remember a song that you haven't heard since high school, right? You can memorize this. It's 10 words that have the power to change your life. We're gonna put it on the screen. As he is, Jesus, so also are we, you and me, his church, his followers. As he is, so also are we in this world. This means as Jesus is right now, at the right hand of the Father, Revelation 4, heavenly creatures flying around him, singing worthy, 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 holy, holy, holy. As Jesus is right now, so are we in this world. Every ounce of love and affection and approval that God the Father has for him in this moment, he has for you right now. That's good. That is good news for us this morning. And I love that he adds, in this world. This is John acknowledging how outlandish this claim is. 
that, that God loves us that way right now. He's acknowledging how difficult this is that in this broken, sinful world, full of people who've turned their backs on God and we're constantly trying to figure out a way to live our lives without him, in this world, the Bible says that when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your failures, he doesn't see your successes, he sees Jesus as he is, so also are we in this world. Friends, this means that regardless of how well you obey or perform, God is not and cannot be disappointed in you. Because he isn't and cannot be disappointed in Jesus. And yet, do we not constantly feel like we disappoint him? We know that God loves us, but we struggle to believe it. And John says, as he is, so also are we in this world. This is what theologians call the doctrine of union with Christ. That through our faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are united to Jesus and Jesus is united to us. Look again at verse nine with me. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live how? Through him. Through him. I think one of the reasons we struggle with feeling like disappointments to God and to ourselves and to the people around us is because we read this verse wrong. We think God sent Jesus, his son, into the world so that we might live for him, so that we might do some things for him, so we might obey the rules. Because, and the reason why we struggle there is because when we don't obey the rules, how do you feel? Like a disappointment. But the Bible says it was so that we might live through him, and there is a difference here. This doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to live for him. He does, because that is a pathway of life and joy to you. What it means is that God's love for you isn't based on what you can or can't do for him. He wants you to live through Jesus, not just for him. Being believing in and confident of God's love for us in Christ, that Jesus would then become the lens by which we interact with God, the way we see God, the way God sees us, the the lens by which we interact with the people around us. I live through Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, you live not just for him, but through him. And again, John's point here is I want you to believe that this is true. He wants you to put your confidence in this reality that you would lean back against the love that God has for you and not feel like you have to hold on or else you're gonna fall. He wants us to trust that this counts for us, that God loves you this way. He sent, he sacrificed, and he stays. He wants us to live through Christ because that is a pathway to freedom. And then in verse 18, he's gonna say, this is what we've been set free from. Look at that, verse 18. He says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected or again, believing completely in God's love. So his point is, if we're afraid, we're not believing that God loves us. Perfect love sets us free from fear. That's what he says. And so he's talking about, when he says there is no fear in love, he's talking about the love of God for us in Christ. The sending, staying, sacrificial love that God has for us in Jesus. And he says that perfect love casts out fear. So it sets us free from fear. More specifically, what he's talking about here, if you read the verse before that, he's talking about what John calls the day of judgment. There's no fear for that day. Romans 14 says that we're all gonna stand before God and we're gonna give an account to him. I don't know about you, but that, that seems like a fearful day. And John goes, there's no fear there. There's no fear for, that, for us who are in Christ because 
the account that we give to him, the, the account that we present to God on that day will be one that's paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. John says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. This word cast, it means to throw or to drive out. And this is what believing God's love does inside of us. It drives out fear. It sets us free from being controlled or gripped by our fears. Again, like my son on my shoulders who said, I know you love me, but he's trying to hang on. His actions proved he didn't believe it because when he was up there, he was doing everything he could to make sure he did not fall. But the reality is, and this is what I want you to get, I was holding him. And the Father is holding you and his grip is stronger than yours. And so you can trust him. Confidence in God's perfect love sets us free from fear. And so I want you to consider with me for a minute What motivates you to do the things you do? What is the thing underneath you doing the things you do? What's the thing underneath the things you not doing the things you don't do? What motivates you to say yes or no? Is it fear or is it love? At some level, I think for all of us, it's it's fear a little bit. Because we've already said, our actions prove that we're hanging on a little bit, that we feel like it's up to us or we're gonna fall. So what are you afraid of? This is work we need to do. If the the Bible says believing God's love is the pathway to freedom from our fear, then we need to know what we're afraid of. Many of you are keenly aware of the the fears that motivate you on a day-to-day basis. Some of you have no idea where to even start with that. And so let let me give you some questions to help you think about this in your own life. And I adapted these from an article by a pastor um, in Michigan named Kevin DeYoung. It's just helpful for us to think about this together for a second. Maybe in a way that you wouldn't. So do you ever struggle with peer pressure? This is gonna help you realize where you're motivated by your fears. Do you ever struggle with just giving in to things just to go along with the people around you? That's being motivated by fear. That's the fear of man. That's doing a thing because if I don't, what are they gonna think? If I don't, what will they say? What will happen to me, right? Are you overcommitted? Is it impossible for you to say no? Could be a sign that you love to be loved by others. And you are afraid that if you don't do that thing and say, yes, yes, I'll help you move, yes, I'll blank, whatever it is, if you say no, then what are they gonna think? You're motivated by your fears. Are your relationships more about being loved than actually loving others? Many times our fear of conflict, our fear of confronting people, it's less about our love for them It's not that we don't wanna offend them, it's that we want them to love us. And so if we confront them, if we enter into that conflict, then what's gonna happen? What are they gonna think? Are you always second guessing yourself? Worrying what people will think about the decisions you make? You might be naturally timid or you may be living in a fear of disappointing others and, and afraid of them thinking that you're foolish. And so anytime you have to make a decision, you just feel stuck because you're afraid. What if I make the wrong one? Motivated by your fear. Do you avoid people for fear of their rejection? You live in isolation and you hate it, but you don't want to enter in with people because what happens if they leave? Do you ever tell little white lies to make yourself look better? It's easy to feel the need to impress people to just lie a little bit about how much you pray or how much you make or how much you weigh or what you've read and where you've been. 
You tell little white lies. It's not a big deal. That's you being motivated by fear because you feel like you have to present and pretend a, ver- a version of yourself that's not real in order for people to like you, to love you. Are you obsessed with your body? It's good to want to take care of our bodies, but the fear of man can easily turn that into an obsession. I could keep going, but what's underneath all of this is a fear of not being good enough. A fear of disappointing God or the people around us that may result in them not loving us and not telling us that we matter and not telling us that we're worth something to them. And John says that perfect love, that God's sending and sacrificial and staying love for you, that perfect love drives out fear. And God has definitively proved that he loves you because he's given us his son. Believing this and not just knowing it is key to living a life of joy in this world because believing that you are loved by God is more than enough. It is. So it sets us free from our fears and it sets us free to love the people around us. So all through this passage, John weaves in this idea and connects this idea of being loved by God to us actually loving the people around us. I want you to see this. Verse seven and eight. He says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his perfect, or his love is perfected in us. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, then he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John's point here is simple. Us loving people is a marker in the life of the Christian. Our love should reflect the love that we receive from God. It should be a love that sins, a love that makes the first move, a love that initiates. It should be a love that sacrifices, that gives more than is required of it without the expectation of it being returned and a love that stays, a love that's committed to the end, a love that will never leave or forsake. And John doesn't just mention this as a suggestion. This is actually the command of the passage, the imperative of the passage. He starts it in verse uh, seven this way and he ends it in verse 21 this way. And all through the passage, we just read it, he connects this idea and he commands it of us. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So John sandwiches these beautiful truths about God's love for us with this command of loving our brother. Because loving the people around us is evidence in us that we believe that God loves us. God's love sets us free to love the people around us. Let me give you an example of how this works. I am not free to love my wife if I need her to love me in order to feel like I matter. I'm not. I'm not free to love her if I need her to love me in return in order to feel like I matter. Because if I'm helping out around the house and I'm rushing home early to get the kids, to take them out of the house, if I'm doing those things in order for her to love me, then I'm not doing it for her, I'm doing it for me. If that's my motivation, then I'm not serving her to love her, I'm serving her so that she will love me. And there is no freedom in that. We're not free to love if that's our motivation because what happens if I do all those things and then she doesn't love me or uh, or give me value and worth in return in the way that I think she should? Well, I'm probably gonna be discouraged at first, but then eventually I'm gonna get bitter and I'm gonna get frustrated. And you're enslaved by that. Or what happens if one day I come home tired and I don't feel up to taking the kids out or whatever, then I'm, I'm living in fear of going, well, what's she gonna think about me? 
Is she gonna leave one day? This is how this works. You're not free to love people if you need them to love you in order to feel like you matter. And this could be your spouse or your kids or your friends or your boss or fill in the blank. John says God's love sets us free to love the people around us. And the way I've said it here in the past is, is helpful to remember two words, convinced and compelled. That as we become convinced, actually believing that God loves us, then we will be compelled to love the people around us and set free to actually do so. So let me ask you this. What has or is God calling you to do in love that you haven't done because maybe you're afraid? Maybe a more difficult way to ask the question, but better is to say this, who has or is God calling you to love? Because he says in verse 21, this is the commandment which we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And he's not saying that if you don't love your brother, then God's not gonna love you. Because he's already said we love because he first loved us. His point is, if you aren't loving the people around you, then you must not be believing that God loves you. That's what he's saying. Because if you believe that God loves you despite the fact that this is the farthest thing from what you deserve, then you don't keep it to yourself. Right? You don't have all these categories going, well, I would do that for them, but. So who is God calling you to love the way he loves you? Who is God sending you to make the first move toward? Church, God's love sets us free from our fears and sets us free to love the people around us. And I know this is difficult, right, to wrap our minds around. It is. It's difficult to understand it, and it's easy to create all these categories and all these questions and going, man, how could that possibly be that God the Father loves me in a way that he sent his son, that he sacrificed, that he gave so much, that he has committed himself to me to stay forever? How could that be? This is difficult to remember, and so Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that it would be difficult for us to remember, and so he's given us a way as a church, as a family of faith, to remember together. And it's through communion. And so if you grabbed one of these sweet little cups on the way in, um, hopefully you did. If you need one, maybe you can raise your hand. There should be some people around who can bring one to you. But he gave us the Lord's Supper to remember. Right? We call it Communion that we get to remember in this act together that we have union with Jesus. That through our faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been united to Christ forever and now we get to live our lives through him. And what this is, is a way to remember. It gets it out of just our heads and just kind of this ethereal space and it puts it in our hands, albeit a, a super flat wafer. It's a way for us to remember. And so the night before, Jesus, the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world, the night before the Son of God died on a cross for your sins, he gathered in a room with his closest friends. And they were celebrating a, an ordinary feast for them, a dinner, a meal, that would have been super ordinary for them and Jesus makes it extraordinary. He takes the bread and he breaks it. Stands up from dinner, they're like, what's he doing? And he goes, you have no idea. Takes the bread, he breaks it, he says, this is my body broken for you. And he takes the cup and he lifts it up and he says, this is my blood shed for you. And then he says this, as often as you gather, you do this in remembrance of me because as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
First John 4 verse 9 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest. It's seen among us. It appears around us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And communion for us is a tangible reminder. We are proclaiming the Lord's death. The son of God came. He died for me so that I might live through him. As a family of faith, we get to remember that. So I want us to do this together. Remember God's faithfulness to us. God loves you. How do you know? We look to the cross. Remember his body broken for us. Try to find the first top here. Hopefully you're not struggling as bad as me. I got fat fingers. <laughs> we remember that Jesus gave his body for us. Remember together, church. And again, he holds the cup up and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. A new covenant where we remember that God's committed himself to us forever and always, stays, abides. I will, when we take this in a second, you remember, this is God saying to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. This is Jesus saying, I'm with you always. Let's remember together, church. Father, how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. Help us to remember in this moment Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to believe that you love us, not because of what we do, but because of who you are and what you have accomplished for us. God, I pray that as we sing and respond, would you allow these words to be true for us? Allow us to worship you in this moment. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you love us. We pray in his name. Amen.